Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today in the podcast, we're talking about how President Trump could very well get reelected, and we're talking about someone who knows about that, Ben LeBolt. Ben was the national press secretary for Obama's 2012 re-election campaign, and he said that the Trump campaign is doing a lot of the same things that they were doing back then and doing them very well. He talks about what the Democrats should be doing to counter that, what some of the campaigns are doing well, and what they're not doing well, and who should get out of the race. Ben LeBolt, next on It's All Political. Ben LeBolt, welcome to It's All Political. Welcome. Well, you live in the city of St. Francis. That's right. We don't have to welcome you here. You're... I, I, I do. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm like 20 blocks away from home, so not a big welcome, but I'm happy to be here. Thanks, Joe. Now, uh, you were an OG member of President Obama's team back when he was just a first-term senator, right? That, the, that's right. I joined uh, his Senate office in, in February 2007, and I was his press secretary then. And he worked on his presidential campaign, and that's where I think we first encountered when you refused to return my calls. <laughs> um, and you were national press secretary for Obama for this 2012 re-election campaign, and now you're a communications consultant here in uh, San Francisco and very conversant with the tech sector in particular, correct? That's right. Yep. Um, so you just wrote a really a, a great and a provocative piece in the, in the Atlantic where you said that the President Trump is using the same strategy that Obama used in 2012 to get reelected. You, you write that he is trying to, quote, exploit a contentious primary on the other side, reconnect uh, with their base of supporters, and define the election as a choice, not a referendum. You write that the Democratic organizations that could answer him have left an open playing field in the battleground states where the election will be decided. And before we dive into the details of all that, I, you know, the question I get, and I'm sure you get all the time, is can President Trump get reelected? Well, he absolutely can. Um, I mean, there are some indicators that are strong for Democrats. You know, his approval rating hasn't approached. 50% during his entire term in office. But I don't think we should take that for granted. And the real risk of having a contentious primary with more than 20 candidates on the Democratic side, I say more than 20 candidates because the number changes every day. And I, <laughs> We lost one this week exactly, and we gained one. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I don't want to be inaccurate. But that they are focused on winning the proximate battles over the course of the next year um, and getting to the poll position in different primary states. And at the same time, Donald Trump, with more resources right now, has a free year to focus on general election voters in the battleground states that will decide the election next year. And his approval rating has ticked up over the past few weeks. And uh, when important events happen, like him implementing new tariffs and farmers taking a huge hit in Wisconsin and Iowa, we haven't been out there to talk about it. And and do TV in Milwaukee and Green Bay and Des Moines and, and advertising to follow it. So my goal was to sound the alarm and say that effort needs to start today. President Obama had a free year in 2011 um, to build a battleground state operation to conduct persuasion advertising, 
uh, to meddle lightly in the debates and play some stories that may be problematic for Mitt Romney, who we were most concerned about coming out of the primary process. And uh, Romney got pushed really far to the right in 2011, and it damaged him in, in 2012 and gave President Obama a real advantage. I'm worried about President Trump doing the same thing with the Democratic primaries this time around and wanted to make sure that uh, Democrats are focusing today on that effort and not six months from now. Well, let's talk about what President Trump is, the Trump campaign is doing that is so effective right now. Well, I, I think it's what you see and what you don't see. So what we're seeing is that President Trump is starting to visit battleground state markets that will be decisive in the election. So he's going to uh, Panama City, Florida to fire up his base. But he's also going to Green Bay, Wisconsin, which is a historic swing market. How Green Bay votes usually is symbolic of how the state of Wisconsin will vote. We know that was a super decisive state in the 2016 election. So he's starting that effort today. Uh, His campaign manager is fundraising. Um, Right now, they're out fundraising individual Democratic campaigns. And they're starting to spend that money today on persuading general election voters. Um, They're up... uh, with significant digital advertising in states. So when he makes an announcement on immigration, it's get tar- it's getting targeted to the voters who care about it, not only his base, uh, but he's up on YouTube. He's up trying to reach persuadable voters and some traditional Democratic uh, demographics. And so uh, we haven't answered that with much, if anything, at this point on the Democratic side of the aisle. Since I wrote my piece, a couple of the super PACs uh, Priorities USA and American Bridge have announced that they're going to make a big advertising push, which I think is great. The sooner the better. And I think let a thousand flowers bloom. Anybody who's willing to to enter that effort um, today to start to conduct persuasion would be helpful because we're starting behind. Well, when you say we should be doing that, who specifically? Because you, as you said, the, the candidates themselves, I mean, they're in sort of existential mode right now. They're looking, as and you said, they're at proximate targets. They're looking at the first four states. They're desperately trying to raise enough money to get on, uh, on the uh, debate stage. Who should be doing – who should be taking these shots at Trump? I, I think that's exactly right. I don't expect the primary campaigns to look long past their primary election dates. I hope that they're not locking into to positions and things that will harm them in the long run. I hope everybody is running as if they could be the nominee. So that's important. But you know, the organizations that I would expect to conduct advertising and organizing today – um, are a couple. First of all, the the Democratic National Committee has a fund um, that is dedicated to focusing on the general election starting today. President Obama sent out an email announcing that fund. And I think that's one place that if you're a donor that's not committed in the primary, and I'm not yet, I want to see the debates before committing to uh, a candidate, that's a good way to get off the sidelines and get engaged. I think secondly, there are these super PAC organizations. The ones that have announced so far are Priorities USA and, and American Bridge that have been involved in past elections. Um, you know, Their goal is to start to fight the general election battle today. Uh, we really need to do more education about uh, Trump's Record um, and the fact that uh, you know he ran, uh, you know, with a clarion call to the working man, but has only rewarded Wall Street. Uh, has an administration filled with self-dealing. Um, has implemented tariffs that have hurt 
uh, farmers across the country and and average working people. He hasn't followed through on his promises uh, from the last campaign. Um, but you may hear Democrats on the Hill making those arguments, but they're not really getting to battleground voters in states and particularly people who have busy lives and they're not focused on politics day to day. We need to start to reach them today because I think frequency really matters in campaigns. And if you hear a message over the course of a year and a half, you're going to start to believe it. Uh, Donald Trump right now has a year and a half to get his message out. Let's make sure we're countering that today. The, this week, uh, Kirsten Gillibrand, a senator from New York, one of the candidates, uh, released – I guess this is the first anti-Trump campaign uh, of uh, – first anti-Trump ad of the campaign that from a candidate. And it, it goes to what you were saying here. It focused on Trump breaking his promises to lower drug prices and fix the nation's infrastructure and bring industry back. I don't know. If, did you see – have you seen that ad? I haven't okay. seen it yet. Is it, but is that the right way to go at Trump? What I mean because – what is effective? I mean, there was all the, all the stuff that came out about him, uh, from the uh, Access Hollywood tape to you know uh, 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 stories about his his businesses, et cetera, et cetera, and the guy still won. So, what is the best way now that we have a record of uh, three to four years? What is the best way to attack him, both from a candidate perspective and from these outside groups? Slash the DNC. I, I think exposing his rhetoric as hollow um, and talking more about his record is one way to go after him. I mean, at the end of the day, he's a fraud. He hasn't represented working people in Washington. He hasn't drained the swamp. He hasn't represented the average American. Uh, he's rewarded his billionaire cronies. And I think that is one way to go after him. Um, you know, I also think there are some questions about morality and American leadership um, that at a character level, we need to discuss. I mean, the fact is he's stood with strong men around the world, alienated American allies. We've had a serious challenge from China in terms of American competitiveness. And uh, he is uh, certainly accelerating the process at which people are turning to China instead of the United States uh, as their ally and economic partner. Uh, around the world. So uh, that's that's not making America great again. Um, and I think if you're raising a kid uh, in America today, um, the rise we've seen in, in hate crimes and hateful rhetoric and disrespect for each other and marginalized communities, I think that's really personified too in the images we've seen of kids in cages at the border. Um, that's a real moral outrage. And as I talk to uh, parents, you know, that's one of the first topics that uh, comes up. Uh, they're wondering what type of country they're raising their children in and what message we're sending to them. So I, I think there are several ways to, to go after Trump. Um, we'll figure out over time what's the most effective. And that's one reason to start today is to determine that. What's moving persuadable voters? What's most compelling to them? We'll probably need to take a few approaches to figure that out. Who? What is the audience that that the Democrats should aim at here? What's who are these? Who are the persuadables that you're speaking of? Well, I think there's two persuadable audiences. Uh, one is uh, the demographic that may have moved from Obama to Trump, um, and are what we think of as traditional swing voters in battleground states. Uh, but I also think there's a mobilization message. You know, one of the reasons Hillary lost 
was because of soft millennial turnout. Um, it wasn't just white working class voters um, in the Midwest. And I think we need motivational messaging to reach that sporadic or maybe never before uh, Democratic voter because they have Democratic tendencies but haven't felt motivated to vote before. Um, to understand what's on the line for them, what's on the line for their community, what's at stake in this election. Um, that may be an even more um, more gettable route uh, to the electoral votes we need than, than reaching uh, the handful of persuadable voters that are left today. So I think we need to pursue both of those paths. Yeah, well, that's <clears throat> that's a question I've been writing about and, and talking to people here and, and uh, you know, on the podcast and, and elsewhere across the country about is sort of this um, fork in the road, if you will. Should Democrats be focusing on uh, expanding their base going into places like Georgia and Arizona and even Texas, you know, they were basically reconstituting the Obama coalition, young voters, people of color. Um, or do they go back to those Rust Belt states like Ohio and Pennsylvania and, and try and win back those Obama-Trump voters? You know, they voted for Obama, then they voted for Trump. What, what, where are you at on that? I think I mean, we like, should. And I, people say, you know, and I, one more thing, you know, people like Steve Phillips here in, in San Francisco, you know Steve, um, mm. <clears throat> uh, who is, also has a um, – running a super PAC for Cory Booker now, but he's uh, – He's a friend of the uh, of President Obama. He's he's very much. He said it's you, you can't do both because the DNC has to put more effort on one. Where I mean, where are you at on this? I disagree that you can't do both, especially early. Um, and I think we need to take a look at the Obama map again because that was already an expanded map, uh, right? I mean. Virginia is almost considered a blue state today, mm -hmm. but it was considered a reach at the time. Uh, North Carolina, uh, we won in the first campaign. We didn't win in the second campaign. That's a state that's still worth a look. I don't think we're at the point where we should be dumping a ton of resources into Georgia and Texas. Uh, those are long shots. If we start to see a path in the polling that says they're a real possibility, I think we should go deeper there. Uh, but I think that the Obama map was an expanded map in the first place. Um, and I think that's one that relied on both your traditional persuadable voters and then some younger voters, some marginalized communities, some demographics that hadn't voted in the past. I also think it will depend on who the nominee is. So mm. if Joe Biden's the nominee, the path to the presidency may well run through the Midwest. Uh, if Senator Harris is the nominee, it may rely on an expanded view of what the Obama coalition is and really a mobilization message that gets in a very diverse electorate, a younger electorate, uh, more of the type of path that uh, President Obama ran on. What if it's Elizabeth Warren? Where, where does where, How would that work? I, you know, I, I think Elizabeth Warren right now with her messaging um, is – trying to reach uh, some of Bernie Sanders voters uh, who tend to straddle both the white working class and sort of highly educated, the, the grad school crowd. Um, and, uh, you know, those are a couple of demographics she's reaching today. I think she needs to work uh, like Mayor Pete to diversify her right. base of support. Um, that'll be the critical focus for her. Um, and that may inform her VP choice uh, and her messaging. And 
her campaign would have to expend a lot of effort there because if there's a, a not uh, sufficiently diverse electorate, I think that's a real threat to us in 2020. <clears throat> I want to talk a little bit more about the Trump and what your your observations were about him. He's killing the Democrats on social media right now. I mean, obviously, he's a master of Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but take that as a, in, in in all the contexts uh, it's offered. Um, his advertising, you write that his advertising team has gone beyond social media campaigns. They've sponsored podcasts, not this one, and created uh, a significant paid media presence on YouTube. You said, in fact, Trump is outspending Democrats six to one on video ads, the primary digital engagement tool for voters today. To explain why that's significant and why that's different. Well, I, I think uh, in the past we've thought of campaigns doing digital as Facebook and Twitter. Um, but we've moved <clears throat> way beyond that in terms of information consumption. I mean, most people are getting their news from a mobile device today. I mean, newspapers know that. That's why yes. <laughs> uh, you've got a podcast. And it's also why you've, you've optimized um, your content uh, for mobile as well. Um, and I think we leave out channels in that discussion that are actually primary news channels for voters. So they're getting their information from YouTube. They're also getting it from advertising on Hulu. That's not actually television. It's it's digital as well. Right. And so the Trump campaign has taken a broad-brushed platform approach um, there to make sure they're reaching voters through uh, all of the channels through which they consume information. Uh, Democrats need to do that as well with our persuasion and mobilization messaging. Persuasion ads are um, you know, advocating to support a candidate. But some of the mobilization messaging is as easy as, uh, look, are you thinking about voting today? Your polling place is three blocks away. Click here if you want more information. Um, so we need to get on those channels more quickly. Um, and uh, we need to target our audience exactly where they're getting their information. And our audience tends to be a little bit younger. So it tends to be a little bit more digital. What what the campaigns are are trying to reach that audience the best? What are doing a good job of it? You know, I I think uh, if I look on the the Democratic side of the aisle today, I think the focus has been a little bit more on creating viral moments from events and debates uh, that uh, are driving fundraising. Um, mm. and and getting people's attention when they may not be tuned into the race yet. Um, and so a moment on stage, like when Senator Harris engaged Vice President Biden, I mean, that drove up her fundraising and her polling numbers because the campaign was ready to go. Uh, and they had uh, a picture of her as a kid yes. uh, waiting to be bussed. They had T-shirts. They had merchandise. <laughs> they had the email wraparound package ready to go. And it was coupled with a live moment. So I think uh, that was an effective strategy, uh, and I give them credit there. Um, Senator Warren's campaign has been creative on digital. Senator Sanders deserves credit for his 2016 campaign on that front. I think they've plateaued a little bit in terms of their tactics. I haven't seen anything really new or innovative from them. Um, compared to 2016. Uh, and I think Senator Booker is always somebody who's been a digital first candidate who understands the lexicon of social, um, who's willing to engage very directly with voters through social and not just the press. So um, I, I don't think we're doing poorly on the digital front. 
Um, but we could be doing more. I also think that uh, while President Trump commands a huge audience on Twitter, um, he's also a tabloid headline chaser and creator. Yes. Um, and so if that's not in service of his overall campaign message over the year and a half, it could actually be a distraction for the campaign, even though it's generating headlines. So some days he's advancing an election message. Some days he's actually taking away from what the message his campaign is that they want to get out. Um, <clears throat> you, I was going to ask you about President, uh, Vice President Biden. I know you're close with him, working with him for many years in the White House and on the campaign trail. Um, so how effective was that? Uh, you know, we talked about you know the, the the social media aspect of it, but how effective was that moment on stage for uh, Senator Harris? And also, how how tough was it on Biden? I mean, it, it, do you think he's still? I mean, he's still on, on, on paper the front runner, but do you think he's legitimately the front runner? You know, I always think that early numbers and primaries are propped up by name ID. You saw that with Joe Lieberman in in two thousand four. Mm, you know, I yeah. never thought. Lieberman was going to come out as the nominee from that process. And Biden entered this process as a stronger candidate with a higher potential of of lasting it out in that top position than Joe Lieberman. But I think, you know, between him and Bernie Sanders, I thought those numbers were artificially high because the electorate wasn't as familiar with Kamala Harris, Mayor Pete, Senator Warren um, at the outset of the race. And uh, they're very tuned in this cycle. Debates are important moments, um, and we'll see a lot of important moments like uh, caucus and primary election nights. Um, and so a lot of voters decide late, and they're going to be learning a lot more about those candidates at key moments. Um, I think, look, on on paper, um, you know, Vice President Biden has a very strong record on foreign policy. Um, a record that's evolved on domestic policy over the years. It's it's evolved with the Democratic Party as opinions um, on things like criminal justice reform um, changed over time. So that's a vulnerability of his that some of the next generation candidates uh, have exploited. Um, and you know, in two thousand eight, I remember how sharp of a debater he was. We didn't see that in the first debate performance this time around, but he's been sharper in interviews. So I think that's an aspect of the campaign that they'll need to clean up moving forward if he's going to maintain is that, rust that or pole what, what position. Is that? I, I think um, you know it. It has been a long time. I think there's some rust. I mean, if you think back to President Obama's first general election debate in 2012 in Denver. Um, that was a really worrisome moment yeah, for he was not a good debate the campaign in the, in the no. first the first couple of debates. You're like, <laughs> that, wow, this guy's great in the stump, but he kind of <laughs> stinks right. on, I mean, on the debate. President stage. Obama was brilliant at uh, crowd events, at yeah. rallies, and at town halls. You yeah. know, at the end of the day, those were really his format. Uh, but historically, Vice President Biden was a really strong debater. I mean, he'd been an elected official since he was 29, and he was used to that uh, crisp uh, debate format. Um, I think. What really opened up in the first debate is that candidates had not been going after Vice President Biden at all. And I think Senator Harris's attack on Biden was a permission slip to other candidates um, that hadn't taken him on directly to do so. And I think you'll see more of that in the weeks ahead uh, and a little bit less of you know, fifth tier candidate going after fifth tier candidate if that gets you one percent of the vote. I'm not quite sure what your long-term strategy is. Speaking of fifth-tier candidates, our very own 
uh, East Bay Congressman Eric Swalwell dropped out of the race. And, and he also uh, gave a permission slip with his attack on Biden, even though he used the same uh, attack twice. The uh, It's time to time to yes. uh, pass the baton. Uh, who's who's carrying the baton now yes. is the question. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Eric's, Eric's hands are empty right now. So I was there at his, his, his uh, farewell press conference the other day, farewell to the campaign. And he said his campaign could have limped along until September, but, quote, we didn't want to screw around here. And it wasn't fair to his family or his staff or his, uh, supporters to you know keep going. Uh, of course, he only raised $850,000 last quarter, which probably helped. When should a candidate dip? Uh, and, and most important, who should dip now? Well, you know, if I didn't think Marianne Williamson was going to be president, I'd say it was time. <laughs> hey, I hope it's not too soon because I think we have her book to come on next week. So, <laughs> Okay, well, that may be the timeline for her. Look, I mean, I, I think a lot of these – I think the time is now. I think a lot of these candidates shouldn't have gotten in in the first place. You know, if you're John Delaney – um, you know, I, I just I think it's offensive, the concept that, you know, a couple of these candidates and you saw this on the Republican side the last time around, you know, might be doing these for media commentator contracts. I mean, uh, when did we get to the point where the only way to get your message out on an issue was to run for president? Hickenlooper could be the next senator from Colorado, you know, for the next Demo Democratic president to govern and pass the agenda. We're going to need a really strong Congress. Um, and we'll need strong governors and states. And I think a lot of these folks could take a look at other platforms um, to go after. Um, I think fundraising will be a barrier for some of them. Uh, if fundraising drops off at a certain point, staff can't come to work the next day, and that'll be a message to them. But I think some of these candidates are going to be in it for longer than we think. And I think like, it'll like take how long? Do you think? I, I think it'll take some of the first few election nights um, oh, really? for some of these candidates so, to drop out, even if they're at three or four percent. So we could be looking at a field of maybe at least a dozen to fifteen on uh, Iowa caucus night. I don't think a dozen is crazy. Wow. Wow. Uh, Tom Steyer in the race, does he does he change the, the dynamics of anything? Uh, you know, the one thing he's been so vocal on <clears throat> impeachment um, that I could see increased pressure uh, on some of the presidential candidates to weigh in from a congressional perspective to advance uh, a stronger – Affront to the Trump administration, whether that's starting impeachment proceedings or being more litigious in terms of how they're going after the bill bars and some of these folks who are close to the investigation who've not been cooperative. I think climate was already a huge topic in the campaign. Yeah. You know, this is one of the first times we're seeing Democrats lead with it, uh, which I'm really thankful for it's an existential issue. I think candidates like Jay Inslee were smart uh, to get in and 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 raise the volume on that issue, and it's had an impact. So I think we'll hear more from Steyer about that, and it will elevate it as a topic. And <clears throat> the other thing that that it brings up is you know sort of the uh, the Sanders and the uh, Warrens of the world saying you know we're not doing any. Uh, uh, High dollar fundraisers or fundraisers behind closed doors, as Warren puts it, is that a sustainable 
fundraising model, can they really make it to the general election like that? Yeah, I, I was super skeptical about it. I think Warren's fundraising numbers answered it in part by saying it might be sustainable to get through the primaries on it. But I, I am concerned about handicapping ourselves for the general election. Mm-hmm. I mean, if, if the Trump campaign was willing to talk to the Russians and WikiLeaks the last time around and and I don't think they care about things like campaign finance laws, Um, you know, to to handicap ourselves and say, um, you know, we're not going to do fundraisers. I I, I worry about fighting on an uneven playing field. I think it's totally appropriate not to accept checks from corporate PACs um, and to say that's a stand we're taking. That's a stand that President Obama took. And I think it was sustainable. Um, But. Uh, I do worry about an uneven playing field going into the election. And my view is let's take a strong stand for campaign finance reform and public financing as uh, being high on the agenda for the next Democratic president to implement. Let's take that fight on as soon as we're elected. But let's assume that uh, Donald Trump Donald Trump is going to deploy every trick in the book in the run-up to this election uh, and make sure we're not making commitments that will hamper us going into the general election fight. Um, one more, uh, one or two more things. One is uh, Trump this uh, Sunday, as we're recording this, is promising immigration rates. Um, originally, he said this would be take millions of people out of the country who are here illegally. Now it's down to you know, two thousand. What is the effect of these raids politically? We know what the effect. I'm writing about this right now. The human cost of it. It's chaos within families. Uh, you know, people are, are, are frightened uh, for themselves, for for their families, for their neighbors and friends. But what is the political? Uh, uh, effect of these things? Well, I I think it's a couple of things. I mean, one, I think it's a very clear play for his base where, you know, the the only major thing that Donald Trump delivered in office was corporate tax reform. Uh, And the average American didn't see it. And if you live in a state like California, your taxes may have gone up and they may have gone down. It was a roll of of the dice. So, I think he's looking to that base and saying he's speaking to them and he's playing a blame game and basically saying um, if uh, you don't have great economic circumstances in your life, it's the fault of immigrants, Um, which I think is a dangerous message, but it's one that he's been promoting and he's following up with that political approach. I also think it's caused a polarization of the debate. So we're not really talking about comprehensive immigration reform anymore. And, you know, Democrats have gone down to the border to take a stand for um, kids who are really refugees, um, leaving some of the most dangerous countries in the world. And it's become a humanitarian discussion. So it's less policy now than it is talking about things like um, treating this as a humanitarian crisis, as if um, we were at the border of a war-torn country. It's in some ways the debate that Europe is having. So I think Trump being so aggressive has polarized the debate, uh, but it's also made for Democrats view it as a humanitarian issue where it used to be, are we going to move first on immigration or climate or health care? Um, now I think it's seen in a different light. Um, so for us, it's elevated immigration as an issue, which – I think is is healthy, um, but some candidates are taking positions that will be harder 
to answer for in the general, like the complete decriminalization of of immigration, no matter how you get into the country. That, that or will your hurt. Age. That will hurt the Democrats. With everybody basically agreed to that, or I'm sorry, everybody agreed to giving um, uh, health care to immigrants. Would that hurt the Democrats? Um, you know, I think it'll. I think it'll come up in Republican advertising. I think they'll choose. Uh, they're not going to choose the faces of children, right? They'll pick uh, the immigrant that they want to show. Uh, It'll be a mugshot. It'll be a mugshot. That's exactly sort of right. I think looking, it, it will be a. Yeah. It will be this notion of you know criminals and right. rapists. Yeah, that, it'll be a really uh, important that, thing yeah. that Trump had brought up uh, in the past. Um, I think we can answer these things from a humanitarian perspective, and I think we double down on comprehensive immigration reform. I think we also point back to under the Obama administration, um, we had a plan uh, for uh, some of these folks in, in Central America who were experiencing serious crises at home um, that uh, led to more of them staying in their home countries and finding other methods of assistance. So. I think we can put together a smart strategy for it. But you're right. There's Willie Horton ads coming on this. Finally, you know uh, President Obama as well as uh, just about anybody. You've worked with him for many years. Do you see any way where he endorses someone before the convention? I think it's unlikely. Um, I think the one outside chance is that if there's a super fractured, super contentious coming into the primary or coming into the convention where we – have a good sense that someone will be the nominee, but somebody else isn't getting out of the race um, and is coming in to torch the convention in a way where it won't be productive. <laughs> who are you speaking of there, Ben? <laughs> ben, who are, you, who are you alluding to? And I'm not talking about John Delaney. Yeah, no. um, Although you he know. has the money to do it, to, to, <laughs> he, to linger that long. He but. does. So I, I, I can see him stepping in at a moment like that. I think a moment like that is unlikely. Um, and... I think, um, you know, if you think about Gore endorsing Dean, I think there have been some moments in the past um, that will discourage him from doing so. Uh, there was a perception in 2016 that the party had its thumb on the scale for Hillary and it allowed some Bernie supporters to be alienated during the general election. I think everybody's trying to avoid a moment like that. We may have overcompensated. I didn't think I needed to see Marianne Williamson in the debates, even though it was entertaining. <laughs> I would have preferred to see Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker and Amy Klobuchar on the same stage as Kamala Harris and Mayor Pete and, and Joe Biden. Um, so I think it's unlikely, but never say never. Hmm. Ben LeBolt, thank you so much for being on It's All Political. Thanks for having me, Jeff. I'd like to thank you all for listening today. I'd like to thank Ben LeBolt for being our guest. I'd like to thank Libby Coleman for producing today's podcast. And remember, whether you know when it's time to dip out of the race or not, it's all political. It's all political as part of the San Francisco Chronicle Podcast Network. Audrey Cooper is our editor-in-chief. Our music, our theme music that we have is Cattle Call. That's written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. If you like this show, subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. For more great journalism like this, subscribe to the San Francisco Chronicle at sanfranciscochronicle.com slash subscribe. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Garofoli. Thanks.